Introducing the Two-Way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the Two-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the Two-Way for yourself at NewBalance.com. Welcome back. Welcome in. This is Country Roads Confidential at Earsports.com, part of a sports podcast network. I am Mike Casaza. Welcoming in Chris Anderson. Chris, I'm going to turn the tables, um, ask you a question today. Go for as it. As opposed to you asking other people questions. Mm-hmm. Can you guess what I did on Thursday afternoon? Did you have a lovely luncheon on Thursday afternoon? Oh, yeah, I didn't really lunch. I had a cup of coffee, like a literal cup of coffee. Uh, but I did talk to human beings in the football department and the athletic department face-to-face. In fact, they're texting me right now. That's how good it was. Let me put myself on mute. But, yeah, first time in a long time, like, actual face-to-face, I wouldn't say interviews, but, like, hey, how's it going? Talk to somebody in the hallway for a little bit, which is one of my favorite things, like, little 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 tricks for young journalists. Never go in and out of a building the same way because um, you might find different people if you go different routes. And also they can't avoid you if they know where you're going. Um, it's easy to avoid you, but like if you change your route up, you know, Mike typically comes around this corner and then bang, I'm coming around the other corner. They never see me coming. I can corner them for a quick one-on-one, but it was like, you know what we call that in like 48 States, Mike, I've been warned stalking. I have been warned, but again, like if I'm going somewhere different, that's not my fault. If I just happen to be, by the way, it's, it's a maze in that facility. Like I'm sure you've been around there and gotten the, the golden ticket tour. Uh, no, I think the first time I walked in there, I sat down and was waiting on a camp to start. And a certain athletic department staffer came up and asked me, quote, what the F are you doing? Are you trying to spy on recruits? Um, so I don't you know if that's to leave a, too. <laughs> I was asked to leave. I don't know if uh, that counts as a uh, golden ticket tour, but it it was something. It's golden. <laughs> I, uh, I I just forgot like how long the hallways were and how many different corridors there are for meeting rooms and film rooms and office space and things like that. Like they've really done a nice job in there, reimagining and repurposing that space. It's it's again it's it's a maze for someone like me. I'm sure, there's an analogy there, but good job. Whoever built that can, can see the idea and put it through completion. Um, I was impressed being in there, but yeah, a luncheon yesterday. Head coach, athletic directors, staff from different capacities are all in there. And uh, I was kind of in a hurry because as we'll get into, Chris, there's a lot to cover based on Neil Brown, Jordan Leslie, and Graham Harrell speaking with reporters for what well, Brown was about 40 minutes and, and Leslie and Harrell were each about 20 minutes apiece. So if you had a, a gap in information or football discourse from the end of the bowl game until now, they did their best to fill that in. Um, and that's not me doing like a mea culpa. No one, no one got to me about my gripes about access which are not gripes observations but yeah it was it was actually kind of fun yesterday and informative and we learned a lot um, including healthier roster this is kind of akin to guys are making shots but this is the hungriest team they've been around and love this group love their competition you know throughout all these these workouts in the winter i think you kind of expect that but man if you're looking for something to at least get you back on square footing with your fans that's a good way to do it it's just that, you know, what can you really get out of these winter workouts? Well, I like the group. They try hard. You know, they got a lot of people going in the right direction, hungry, competitive. That'll get people to lean in for the start of spring football. And then you get into some of the personnel stuff that 
frankly, gives you a really good frame into what they're going to do for these 15 practices from quarterback all the way back to safety and maybe even specialist. We'll see. A ton of news. I don't even know where to begin. What's um? How do you want to break the seal here? Can can we begin with me correcting you on something? It's my favorite way to begin a conversation. Not mine, but we can do it. Okay. Um, Neil Brown, 20-minute opens, opening statement, and then a 20 to 25-minute answer session, Q&A. Um, Graham Harrell, no opening statement, but 30 straight minutes of questions and answers. Was it 30? 30 minutes, uh, 29 and some change. Jordan Leslie, and this is this is the file that was sent to us by the school for the, for the video. Jordan Leslie, 12 minutes with no answer longer than in a minute and 20 seconds. So I, so I this I don't know if this is a comment uh, commentary on on their personalities, which either one's fine, but more so of this the current situation for all three coaches. I mean, uh, as we've seen the last couple of years, defense not an issue. Jordan Leslie not a lot to talk about. Um, offense overhaul, new coach need something new. Neil Brown lots of changes, lots of transfers, lots to talk about. Uh, haven't talked to him in a while, so. Lots of time to talk, lots of opening statement. Um, so do you want to get the short one out of the way first? You mean Jordan Defense? Leslie? Yeah, let's do it. I, I'll tell you what, from, and again, this is another journalist thing, but when we take these videos and we cut them up into clips that we can use for four stories or for the tops of stories, and if you checked out our website, you've inevitably seen standalone stories with our coach talking, it's just video, or they're at the top of a story that may or may not be related to the story below it. Um, Jared Parker? was difficult to work with, not like in a professional sense, but in a video sense, because he could go on like two and a half, three and a half minute answers. And people aren't going to pay attention to all that. Leslie is an ace for like 75 to 90 seconds at yeah. most. Like he fits his response into this like video frame, I would call it. Bless him. That's great. And Brown's pretty good about that too. Uh, Harold? We're not going to see a lot of Harold videos this year, I don't think. Because... That guy is probably what they call a football guy. You can tell he can't help himself. He loves to talk about the game, and his brain moves so fast when he's talking about it because he knows so much, and he's trying to, I would say, get it all out there but filter it and realize that he's talking to a, <laughs> uh, let's be honest, not the smartest crowd. It's not a room of receivers or quarterbacks or people who know what they're talking about necessarily. So his acumen is way up here. Ours is, let's just say, lower. Right. And you can tell he's like he can't help himself, but he's really trying to like split it into digestible pieces. But he was he, he was verbose, but he was really informative yesterday about what he wants to do, how he's going to do it, what he's working with, how he's going to work with it. Um, we'll definitely get to that. But defense. Yeah. Like. 12 shutouts, at least. Right. They're going to be very good. They're going to be deep even when they have concerns, which would be basically your back end. They make it sound like they're so fast and athletic and interchangeable where maybe a corner could play safety or safety could play corner because they have those type of athletes that 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 ability will take away some of their inabilities. The fact that they could be somewhere fast or that they could just get to a spot because they're so athletic, that may that may dilute some of the concerns about they don't know how to get to a spot or they don't yet know how to handle themselves in a game. You know, what happens after a good player or a bad play? I don't know, but they're going to do it fast, and they're going to do it with a certain athletic ability. That's probably pretty promising. Yeah, he he, he spoke like a coach who has all six or t their top six defensive linemen back 
and uh, some experience at the linebacking core and, and feels that that front seven, front six, front seven, whatever you want to call it, however they decide to line up, is going to help mitigate any issues in the back end. And and you're right. I think there are, there were some comments made by both him and Neil Brown about the secondary that I found interesting. We'll get to in a second. But that front front seven, it sounds like they're extremely confident in what they have um, and what they're going to have. Because I think both I think both yeah both Leslie and Brown were asked about obviously the Josh Chandler Tomato situation and and we've talked about it ad nauseum the last couple of months about it's just weird because he was gone definitively leaving. It was not even a question that he was staying. And then he was. With no explanation why. And then he wasn't. But West Virginia had planned. There there was only like this, what what was it, like a five-week window, four-week window where he was in the plans for 2022. And and that four-week window when he was back in the fold, I guess you will. They're not planning for 20. Like, you know, that, that that's some of that's vacation. A lot of that is recruiting was going on right there. So there, there was I don't know how much of an impact of that flip flop would have on West Virginia's plans and the coaching staff's plans. And, and both coaches kind of hinted at that because they had already gone out and gotten Lee Koba. And, and the reason they got Lee Koba was that he was going to be their starting Mike linebacker. He was the guy that they that has power five experience. He was the guy that could run all over the field. And he was a guy that was going to be in spring football, and they were going to break him in as the starting Mike linebacker. And so as we stand right now on March 4th, West Virginia is in the same position they were on on January 4th and December 4th and November 4th. Like the only day it was different was February 4th, I guess. Um, So I I think that it, it. didn't seem like it really had that big of an impact on the coaching staff or their plans for this coming season. And and the confidence there in that front seven was, was still strong. You want to know the best thing that happened in WVU's defense yesterday? Tell me. Tyquan Thornton ran a 4.2140 at the combine. <laughs> Cause that dude made them look ridiculously slow. And that may be the fastest guy in combine history, it turns out. Um, that's the Baylor receiver who just ran through them a couple times last year. And I think Brown famously said, we still haven't covered him. He's out running yep. around in the parking lot right now. <laughs> that was him, yes. 4.21 will give you some uh, some validity to a statement like that, too. The uh, the injuries on defense, I think, are going to be worth worth noting in that they're, they're not, there's not a lot, but they're somewhat significant. Akeem Mesador... There have been some whispers about that. They let that one out of the bag. An upper body injury. It sounds like he had a surgery that he's just not going to be around for the spring. Um, X read low. Out. He was hurt late last season. He's not yet back. I can't think of another significant one on defense, right? Well, Edward Sterenin. I, I don't I mean, depends on how where you want to go with. I was. He was my next layer because now you have people who are going to. Oh, well, Nick Troy Fortune. We'll play a little bit, which is good news. Um yeah. They're going to break him in, but he'll be there. He can do all the mental reps. He'll do some physical stuff. I'm not sure they're going to have him bang and clang around a little bit. But, yeah, good one there because he won't be 100% participant. But the fact that he's not zero is really good news because they're going to need him. Um, that's an injury that can sap your confidence. And if you remember, that was a the guy they were trying to play more confidently last season. So the sooner he can get at least back on schedule and then ahead of schedule, great for that secondary. But it, they're they're not breathing into a brown paper bag at cornerback right now. They feel like they're pretty good there. Defense. Built from the front to the back is the defensive line. No Mesador. Dante Stills are going to put on ice, basically, and just say, yeah, don't need to do a whole lot. We get that. And then that kind of turns the focus to guys you would think. Second line, Sean Martin, ADV, 
Uh, Jordan Jefferson, however, Vesterinen, whatever injury knocked him out of the bowl game, will keep him out here. So he figured that's another surgery and long-term recovery, so he's not quite back yet. But Hammond Russell, Braden Dudley, Sean Martin in particular, they mentioned Jalen Thornton, talked up Jordan Jefferson fondly because he did play very well late last season. I'm glad he got some spotlight there. And that's not a bad group. Like, that defensive line is going to be better. It's going to be addition by subtraction, so to speak. But then you're going to get Stills and Messador back and be presumably even better. Don't forget Taj Alston. Um, that's suddenly maybe the most exciting part of this, that you're going to have a pretty good defensive line eventually, but you're also going to spend the spring trying to have a good defensive line with players who might not otherwise get snaps because of Mesador and um, Stills are in the middle of that defense getting a lot of action. Well, then guys like... Russell and Dudley, I'm trying to think of other people here. Um, Lawton, they mentioned yesterday. Mm-hmm. They're not going to get a ton of reps, but you move them out of the way, and all of a sudden you're going to get eyes on new players and, and people who just didn't have an opportunity last year because they're aging and experienced. And again, the people in front of them, those people are still back, but they'll be out of the way too. So that defensive line is going to be one to track. Yeah. I was, it, in that story about the five guys that Neil Brown said would miss some or all of spring football, I kind of made the, the similar argument of is this a good thing that Messador's out? I mean, it's never a good thing that a player is injured, ever, ever, ever. But, like, how much better is Akeem Messador going to get by getting some practice reps in spring football? Marginally, like, you know, it's not going to be some exponential leap again for him. He's already very good, and I'm not sure how much spring football is going to change that. However, with everybody coming back in that too deep, this is an opportunity for those young guys to get the reps, get the reps, get the reps, and, like, I'll just say it, it's also going to be an opportunity for them to kind of feel like they are part of the rotation. Um, you know, there is going to be some concern. I don't know about this position, but Neil Brown touched on it about at the end of spring, there will likely be a couple guys that don't feel confident in their spot on the depth chart. Well, how do you how do you not feel confident in your spot on the depth chart if you are playing all spring football long? Yeah. You are making good reps. You are working with the first team. Now, obviously, you know in the back of your mind, Mesador and or Stills are going to get more reps later. Even Austin, I doubt Austin will get too many reps. Um, I mean, not because he's injured or anything, but when you're, what, a sixth-year senior, like how many reps do you need? Mm-hmm. So it, it's one of those things where those guys are going to get some confidence. They're going to get some reps, and I think it's really going to bolster. And, and West Virginia might actually be better off with those older guys, those more experienced guys, just kind of – taking it easy all spring long. And don't forget, Messador played new positions last year, which kind of, I wouldn't say like a new one, but they definitely bounced him outside from the middle, which gave Jefferson more shine. And they said Jefferson was good last season. Well, Jefferson's going to get a whole spring in the middle now. And if he's physically continuing like he was, I mean, that guy can be a problem in the middle. He really can. It's just that he's been so young for so long. Like, don't forget, he started a game as a 17-year-old. 17. Um, second year was tough, but it was tough on everybody. And he was good last year. I mean, relatively to relative to where he had been and certainly relative to the guy in front of him, you know, there's, that's a range right there, but he was going in the right direction. That should be good too. linebacker. I love this. They're going to try to add a linebacker, but if not fine, cause they play, they can play with one linebacker. They can play with three. Um, it sounds like they want to hit the portal and get maybe the best available, probably a middle linebacker. I think they had their eyes on somebody until Chandler told them, I guess in the bowl game, Hey, I'm coming back. And then they backed off on that because they were kind of pinched. But Dixon, ton of time at will. Mm-hmm. Mike's just kind of Cobra right now, right? And then yeah, they Bandit. said they were moving Jacory Hammett over, but I mean he missed all That's... of last season with that knee injury, and it's going to be a newish position for him. 
not the biggest guy. I was surprised by that one. I thought maybe yeah. Will for him, like an outside position. But you're right. Yeah, he'll go to the middle. But that may just be they got to have a guy who can take reps. Um, and he might be a bandit eventually. And, and the Mike and Bandit are parallel enough that he could learn there. But he'll get some different perspective there. Uh, and then Bandit is basically going to be um, Carr and Bartlett. Bartlett, again, looks totally different. Has gotten better. But people there, just not a lot of depth. Um, and then corner and safety, they, they just feel good. They got Floyd and they got Woods, and it sounds like those are going to be really good players. Porter decision obviously stunned him, but I don't think that they knew that was impossible. It's a guy from South Florida. His brother is one of the top recruits in the country. Um, interesting to see if he ends up in Miami eventually. I don't know why. Brother went to – where did he sign? Florida State? No, no, no. So, yeah, yeah. Porter's already committed to Miami, and his brother signed with Georgia. Georgia, that's right, yeah. So – I don't think it was a surprise that he wasn't going to be here. Don't forget, like, remember, they they actually had the brother on campus, didn't they? Yeah. Because they, he was a visitor for a football game. That was a big deal. So the brother was always a good player. But um, I thought he went to Florida State, but he went to Georgia, right? So anyways, like, I don't I don't think that they were stunned by that. That's a guy that you could lose. And a South Florida kid who um, has a chance to go home and do some stuff that maybe he was going to do here. Maybe he wasn't. We'll see. But it's more comfortable at home. But. They don't seem like they're worried about that either, and which is fine. Again, I, I think we talked about this and read about this too. They're in position to at least have the answers there, and they've replaced Rayshon Miller before, and they've they've replaced cornerbacks that got hurt before, and and it's not it's not an impossible thing. It's not. And Porter's a good player, and he's going to be a player. I've been very high on him and his pedigree. And I always say that, but like they have options there, and, and Brown Brown kind of digs that. FCS to FBS experience. I don't know if he's saying that because he has two former FCS all-conference All-America players there and what other song would you sing if you have those instruments in the band, I guess. <laughs> but it does make sense. He's got talented players who have some experience and you add Fortune in there and, and you get some Andrew Wilson Lamp and um, you know if they can get him on campus and he can get up to speed, the, the freshman spells is a guy that it doesn't sound they're going to try to redshirt freshman either, so he'll have a chance this season too. So that's that's a guy that won't be here for the spring and won't factor into things, but they'll certainly be thinking about him. He's that good, it sounds like. Um, it just alleviated a lot of concerns, I think, about their the back end of their defense. The front should be fine. The middle should be fine. It was probably going to be as good as the back, and they just seem like that the talent is going to be such that the experience won't be a great concern. Yeah, uh, and one comment and one question for you. The the comment is, I, I don't remember, uh, recall, maybe you know, it's been several years, I'm getting older, but uh, uh, this staff has been able to get by, and I have talked about it every year, how I feel like it's so dangerous, it's so such a concern, and then it never ends up coming to fruition. But they have done such a good job, I guess, of making it work with, like, two corners, three corners. Like, they very rarely play significantly, uh, you know, significant staffs, more than three corners, essentially. Uh, you know, what was it a couple years ago when Fortune was a freshman? Like, I mean, he played the third most snaps at corner because it was uh, they just went with the first two and that was it. And and they made it work and they've made it work seemingly every year since of just running it with two to three corners. So I continue to be concerned about depth at that position. They continue to not be and make it work. So um, it is what it is. My question for you, because I, I don't know if I heard it incorrectly or if I'm making assumptions based off of what I heard, but it sure sounded a lot like to me, to me, like the current plan is Floyd, the new FCS transfer at one corner, 
and Woods at the other corner? Or or did they keep it open for Woods to kind of move around? Because he did move around last year, but it sounded to me like they were focused on that. Those are your two corners. Yeah, I think so. But I wonder, like, if, if certain teams – and here here's the, the gift, what they have, is that they can do matchups. Like, they were very hamstrung in packages and matching up last year, year before, just because of depth and injuries and, and guys who weren't playing well. And, and they've had to do some obscure things we've talked about and marveled at before because they were sometimes good when they adapted. They would play with their left hand and, and be okay, be effective. And sometimes other teams figured out that you can't throw strikes with your left hand and they became different, but it took a while. Like, they were able to buy themselves some time. But now, like, for example, if you if you have a guy who's a big slot receiver, let's say, well, maybe you put Woods on him in the slot. If they're going to play, like, a three receiver set all game. And all of a sudden they're going to try to hit that guy all day. Maybe you put your best corner, or a bigger corner on him and Woods isn't small. He's a tough guy. He's got experience. You could do that. But if their best receivers outside and he's going to be on that left side or right side all day, I'm not sure where Woods will hang out um, by assignment, but like maybe Woods can just go and he can hang out on one side and he can guard that guy. If, if you have just a corner and you don't have anybody who's accustomed to the slot, which is, which is hard to do. Then you're you're really not able to do stuff. And if you're playing a team that has that plays four wide all game, and you only have two or three corners, and you don't necessarily want your spear or your bandit out there trying to cover guys, well, maybe you move Woods inside, or maybe you move Floyd inside, but just for a matchup there. Maybe your other corners are better outside players than inside guys. If your fourth corner has to play and he's not comfortable in the slot, all right, bump one of your outside guys in. I think in a in a normal down and distance, Woods is an outside guy. But I think that their point is that they have people who are big and fast, like Wilson Lamp. They mentioned that. He's a long guy, but he can really run. And and this is kind of anecdotal from before. They had him returning kickoffs last year in the camp, which is not a thing that like a 6'3 freshman gets to do, right? Especially a cornerback. But that's that's his agility, his athleticism, they think. So they have different options there, too. You're probably right. He The plan probably is to start him outside, but... At the very least, they could do different things with him. You know, if they're if they're going to flood the field with defensive backs against uh, an air raid team or whatever, it's possible they can move someone like Woods around and put him in a spot that helps everybody else, or put somebody else in the field where they're more comfortable. And you get to that whole best eleven on the field concept. That's valuable. You ready to start talking offense? Yeah. Should we stop and say hi to Neil Brown? Because one thing that you and I talked about that I'm glad he said this yesterday is the whole concept of receiver. This whole thing about like share the wealth and get a whole bunch of guys the ball. That's cool. I, I would much rather concentrate my snaps into my best players, have someone that really scares the heck out of the defense, have somebody who gets seven or eight catches and wears on a defense, have somebody that you know every game is going to be involved or leaned on or featured, and you have to really worry about that guy instead of the whole like, oh, where are they going to hit me today? That's cool, but like that may also have to do it sounds like with why some of the receivers left and they made a very positive situation out of having Ford Wheaton, uh, Sam James, Caden Prather and Reese Smith back. That's four. And we've talked about how they don't have a whole lot of depth at receiver and they have to develop some, some backups and some players who are going to be arriving or who have arrived and are going to have to hurry up and contribute. Well, maybe not so much because if you have four and you play three and those guys are going to get a lot of action, that's good. And then you're going to keep them here too. Like, so if Prather is your fourth guy, let's say, and he's only getting a couple of catches, that's fine. But if Prather is your second or third guy and he's getting a lot of catches, well, he's more likely to stay and be happy. That's kind of the, that new 2022 thinking that involves, you know, don't redshirt guys. And, and if you're going to get them on the field, give them action. All right. That's the way to do it. So to me, that seemed like they turned a question mark into a bit of an exclamation point about, correct. 
this offense lacks a wealth of receivers right now. However, we're going to pour a ton of reps in those guys. They're going to be very productive, and you're going to see teams that have to contend with Ford Whedon, Sam James, Caden Prather, and Reese Smith, who really got talked up yesterday, did he not? They did. Um, I, I did notice, speaking of listening to our podcast, a, a shout-out from Neil Brown to Reese Smith saying, admitting, I guess, it, you know, him taking – not blame, but just saying that he felt that he underutilized Reese Smith last year. And that's something we've been talking about, how they, they continue to go to him in key plays, in key situations, and then you know then he disappears for a long time. And, and we, we wondered why. But something else we said, and it's a, a different way of putting what you just said, was West Virginia seemed to have a wide receiver room full of betas of second receivers third receivers which you need second receivers and third receivers you you absolutely need them you also need an alpha receiver you need that guy that you can just say screw it i'm throwing it to him and and i don't care if you know i'm throwing it to him i'm gonna throw to him and he's gonna catch it period end of story and i'm not sure west virginia has had that for a couple years now so i i think it's important and and i think to, to establish that, and one way of establishing that is to get them the reps that you're talking about. Get them repeated reps, put the focus on them, stop trying to spread it to nine different guys, and, and establish that number one guy for that offense. Sounds like tight end is going to have a place, too. Like They're going to have one on the field a whole bunch. This is, like, they only have four receivers right now, and maybe they get a couple more freshman, junior college transfers. That's fine, but it sounds like that's going to supplement their main three, which means you know three receivers, tight end, or maybe two running backs. I don't know. Carroll's done some of that. I think it's impossible to predict what he's going to do right now, but he's done it before. But they talked up. Um, well, it looks like a lock will miss the spring. We can talk about that. Yeah, that's but, a, that's that's painful for him. Yeah, I mean, he he needs the time. The, the amount of time he hasn't played in his career is kind of startling at this point. But Traylon Davis, um, Palendi is here. They they have people that they can do. Um, Wickstrom, don't forget, that's another guy that, that it's time in that they've been here for a year. Maybe it's too soon for them to produce. You would think like at an expected level, but it's time because the roster has changed so much that they've been really pulled up. No Banks, no Finley, now no O'Loughlin. Um, Palendi's a guy that's been a blocker more effectively, certainly more frequently than a receiver. But I think they're going to have one out there a whole bunch. And even if you could just get reps blocking, at least they know what they can do with those guys too. But I would think that if you have three good receivers that you like, four, but typically three spots, that, that tight end is going to factor in a whole bunch too. That'll be good. Um, offensive line, major shakeup there. Yeah, I feel like he didn't touch on that enough, the, the, the big change. It's an interesting conversation because if you have a very good right tackle, and by all accounts, Wyatt Milam is and will be a very good right tackle, and you have a four-star left-handed quarterback coming in as a true freshman, boy, a way to make Nico Marchio feel comfortable is to have a very good right tackle protecting his blind side. However, Wyatt Milam will now spend at least the spring at left tackle. Brandon Yates will go to the right. There's a whole lot of tinfoil hat stuff here, but there is some common sense in football. Um, left tackle is harder than right tackle. Yates may excel on the right side more than he has on the left. Um, why is left tackle so important? Why is it so difficult? A lot of teams will put their best pass rusher on the line or off the line on that left side to get around to the quarterback's blind side. Um, protect that with your best left tackle. You're going to be good, and those guys are going to make a lot of money. Um, 
it's not unusual to move your best tackle or sometimes your best offensive lineman in college football to left tackle. That Milam's left-handed, uh, I don't know. I don't see him <laughs> signing. I don't see him signing autographs out at tackle. You know, he's blocking people. Is it more comfortable because his left side is a strong hot side? Probably, but it, it's quite possible that it's just the best way to help the offensive line. He's left-handed. It may give Yates a better chance to succeed on the right side. It may also give someone like Tomas Rematch um, or, or anybody else a chance to get in on the right side because Milam is taking one of those tackle spots. I think it would be harder for someone to replace Yates at left tackle than at right tackle. Does that make sense? Yeah. Also, your left-handed quarterback does not want to see pressure in his face. Like, his front side will be his left side. He does not want to see pressure. If he sees his left tackle walling guys off and pancaking dudes, he's going to be very comfortable. So I would not put a whole lot of stock into that. Um, Yeah, his blind side is going to be the right side. And for all the reasons I just said that the left side is so important, it flips when your quarterback is left-handed. But even if your left-handed quarterback's out there, he's going to be predominantly focused on that left side. And if he sees Milam blocking guys off and putting guys out of the way and opening windows for him to throw through, he's going to feel pretty good about that. So I don't, I wouldn't put a whole lot of stock into this means that Marquio isn't starting. You can make an argument that it's just as good for Marquio too. Your counter on the conspiracies. Uh, I have a thought that goes back to, it might've been like my first depth chart projection of last year after the addition of Doug Nestor. What if this is because I I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but I feel like so you correct me if I'm wrong because yes. I've already corrected you, so you can correct me now. It wasn't it at some point that they said that Jordan White was the sixth best offensive lineman, or he might be one of the five best offensive linemen? He just happens to be behind Doug Nestor. Correct. Apparently doing very well so far. Okay. So right now, he is a backup center and a backup guard. He is behind Zach Frazier and Doug Nestor. He is not going to see the field at those two spots unless there's an injury or somebody moves. You move Milam from right tackle to left tackle. You take Nestor and move him from right guard to right tackle. Slide Jordan White into right guard. Does that five as a whole make you better up front than the five they had last year, even though all five starters return? I like it. Best that's, five, right? That's that's the. St- I think this is a two-step process. Is my point, and I think step one was moving Wyatt, Wyatt Milan to left tackle, and, and it kind of goes with your point about it's easier to replace that right tackle than it is a left tackle. Mm-hmm. I think we have this covered. I'll add one more aspect too. Better guard, Chris. Mm-hmm. Um, eyeball test. You can use PFF if you want to. Is it Gemitter or is it Nestor? I think it's Nestor, but better. I think you're right. Better tackle. Milam or Yates? Milam. Okay. So if you have a one and a four, let's say, in one a one star and a four star, let's say, a four star in Nestor and a one star in Yates, that's five stars. Yeah. If you have a two star in Gemitter and a three star in Milam, you have five stars. Right. So by moving your right tackle next to the your left tackle over to next to the right guard who is your best guard that may make your right tackle better and if your left tackle is your number two guy on the offensive line and you move him next to your left guard who isn't your best guard but is good well now your left side is really good too so it might be a way to help Yates by putting him next to a good guard and it might be a way to help Gamitter, who wasn't bad by helping him play with a 
good left tackle too. It, there's a lot of explanations that make sense here. I don't think it's a bad move at all. It's spring, I guess. It's experimental. Would not be surprised if this stuck, and that's how they look at the start of the season. Yep. Or a change. Who knows? Uh, I think we have everything covered on offense. Is there a position that has three people competing for a spot that we should talk about? No, I think we're good. You want to move? Are you talking about kicker or well, kickoff specialist? Snapper? I don't. Uh, oh, quarterback. Nah, quarterback. That's right. Okay. Picture this: It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're going to write a lot about it, talk a lot about it. It's it's a derby. Um, I don't know. Like, like it's. I don't think there's any parameters to start if you... Listen, at the very end of it, I asked Harold about what he talks about when he's recruiting quarterbacks or what he looks at when he's recruiting quarterbacks, and he ran the gamut. But accuracy, footwork, um, natural thrower, those are the three that stood out to me. Not height, not weight, not handedness. Um, Got to have a swagger. All three of those guys, you know what they have. If they have tools physically, um, there's nothing disqualifying. There's no prerequisites that puts one above the other. There's certainly not an experience edge for anybody because – only Green has played not very much, and none of them have done anything for Harold. So, so who knows? But the one thing that struck me was that, and I'm going to keep banging this drum in case I'm right, is that he talked about Mason Fine at North Texas, and that was a guy that he recruited and never talked to or saw. And when he walked in the building, he's like, "Oh my God, I hope that's not Mason Fine," because he was a small guy. <laughs> but then that kind of shattered um, a, a a Texas quarterback mentality where you don't have to be six four, two hundred twenty pounds, a big arm. And all of a sudden, Mason Fine starts as a true freshman, sets a ton of records eventually during and after Harold's time there. Um, and he's, I'm, I'm just telling you, he's comparable to Green. So if you thought that Green wasn't going to get it because it's a different offense and it requires a bigger, stronger passer, not valid. There's a precedent there that I'm sure is going to look familiar to Harold. Um, I don't know if it makes him the leader or anything like that, but I think that he's got as much of a chance as Crowder or Marchio. I'm with you. I think this might be the first true, true quarterback battle at West Virginia since 2013. And I, I believe it was a couple podcasts ago. I mentioned it. I just want to repeat it. I won't stick to it very long, but you you can't um, sissy foot around with this and, and not make decisions. <laughs> if, yeah, yeah, sorry. I had to, like, you can't. I just feel like that's what happened in 2013. There was no decision made. A carousel was set up. Talks of playing two quarterbacks. Uncertainty. You you have to you you don't have to make a decision by the end of the spring, but you have to start leaning into a choice at some point because the longer that you go back and forth, can't make a choice, throw out the idea of two quarterbacks playing in the same game, all this stuff. It's it's a recipe for disaster. We rarely see it work. And it, so I don't know which one of the three is going to win. I don't know. They're going to know. The coaching staff is going to know. They're going to get a sense of what's going on with these guys, who's going to start stepping up. And I feel like once you get a hint of who that is, you need to go ahead and kind of lean into it, it because nothing is going to be worse for this team than quarterback uncertainty that goes on into the season. Oh man, yeah. If they're if they're getting booed or pulling guys out in the middle of games in September, that's going to be bad. The 
quarterback thing will not stop at the end of the spring. They may have a guy. They may have two guys. We'll see. But if they have right. two or one, probably losing one. And yeah. then Brown Brown said that this was very interesting, too. It was very transparent that um, if they have to, they will go to the portal. And what will the parameters be? Well, I don't want to talk about that. But here's <laughs> what I'll talk about. Like, it's going to have to be an experienced guy from, I would assume, Power 5, Group of 5 may not matter, but quality of starts, quality of competition, we'll see. But somebody who's been there for a quantity of time that is going to be an upgrade over a sophomore, a freshman, and a freshman, which could be a concern. And I think if they look at things that, man, too green, uh, too inexperienced, this isn't going to fix itself in non-conference play, and then by the time the Big 12 rolls, rolls around, we're going to get somebody. They're going to do it. But I, I can tell you that they, they've done it. They tried, and they got to the finish line with some people and, and felt pretty good about extending an invitation and getting a yes, but also did not feel so confident that the person that they wanted to bring in or entertain the idea of bringing in, they did not feel so confident that person was going to be the unquestioned starter, and that was really all they were looking for. Um, can they get somebody who makes it make sense to one, two, or three of the other quarterbacks that, hey, this guy is certifiably better than you in experience, um, and, and accomplishments chill for a year, right? Watch, learn, and be ready to go. And that it's never found that to be the case doesn't mean that that won't happen. And Brown pretty clearly said that there's going to be guys in the portal. And if it makes sense, they'll do it. So that's this is a stay tuned, I think, on this. Important for these three guys, and certainly one or two of them, but even if one or two of them have a good one, that means it's important for one or two people who may disappear too, and they're going to have to go do some work. I'm not predicting that two guys leave. I'd be very surprised if that happens. I wouldn't be surprised if all three are back here in the fall. But if it doesn't work, I wouldn't be surprised if one leaves and they get one, or if two leaves and they get two or something like that. It's it's going to be a fluid thing, I'm sure. I don't think they'll have a ton of movement, a lot of future here for those quarterbacks. But I do think that if it's if it's a shortcoming performance potential, they're going to go portal diving, Chris. Right. I, I'm curious to see what becomes available in the spring. A, a lot of guys become available after spring football, but usually the guys that are leaving at the end of spring football are leaving because they lost out on a battle in spring football, which means they were second or third or fourth string at their own school. Um, so is is West Virginia's best option a guy that finished third in the quarterback battle at Florida, you know, or whatever school you want to say? I don't know. And and that's something that we we took some heat. I don't know if you remember that, uh, at least on our message board for our comments um, back in January about a couple of the quarterback options, one that came up for a visit. And we asked the question, we said it out loud, exactly what Neil Brown said. Was this, were these players definitively going to come in and start? And so I, I think that's something that that you have to keep in mind uh, when d- thinking about, not you personally, Mike, but have to keep in mind when you're talking about transfers that are coming after spring. Because I, in my mind, maybe I'll go back and check the, the data, but it, I feel like the quarterbacks that become available after spring football are not quite the quarterbacks that you know are going to waltz right in and be a starter. Yeah, your profile is probably coaching change. Mm-hmm. And just the the new coach had a relationship with a guy who was on the roster or who came in from another school and then unseat somebody. Um, it could be a laid out of, um, of, of a school like um, Jalen Daniels. That's a surprise. Right. And there's going to be fewer landing spots for him. 
that's a different scenario there. But you're looking at coaching change, you're looking at surprises. And then I wonder if there, how many guys started games last year or two years ago, let's say, but, but got, got beat out by a, uh, an incoming true freshman or, or even a transfer. So there, there's like three categories there, I think, of profile. Somebody who um, there was a coaching change, somebody who just got unseated by a newcomer, and a surprise. And you'll see all three, I'm sure. But you're right. The, 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 the chances of hitting on one of them, that's a really good quarterback. It's lower than it was in December and January. Absolutely. But that doesn't yeah. mean there, there'll be a shallow pool of options there. And for West Virginia, one of the eligible receivers, so to speak. Um, if they go out of spring and say, we don't have a guy you can come in and start, it's going to make it very easy to accept that opportunity. Whereas maybe that wasn't so true before the spring. Um, and maybe before Graham Harrell, um, back in December and early January when they are trying to do this. So there's there's some possibilities there. Shift to basketball? Or do you want let's, to talk about the roster additions coming? Now no, let's do it. Yeah, basketball. Let's do it. Um, two games left? Three? Sure. Don't know? Four, I don't think. I don't think this is a postseason team, Chris, unless they win the Big 12 tournament. Uh, as I've written and explained, the NIT process for selecting teams is kind of underway already, and I don't know how or why West Virginia would be on the radar or how they're going to get themselves up there short of a miracle run here, which means probably winning four games and losing in the Big 12 final. Um, that's the only way I would think, and even then it might be a long shot. And I just don't think the CBI is going to happen. I just think it's an expense that they may not want to incur, and I'm also not sure that they're going to be invited. That's just a 16-team event now, so probably ends when the Big 12 tournament ends, provided the Big 12 tournament ends without West Virginia cutting down the nets. Um, it's kind of legacy time, which leads me to this. Huggins has hinted that there will be players who will not play. Here are, here are my two legacy questions. If he doesn't pull the trigger on this, this has been a very unusual year for him behind the mic and things he said that he has not followed through on and things that he said that haven't made sense otherwise. But he's certainly pulled the playing time card a couple of times, but he hasn't played it with one exception, Gabe Osteboyan. If you look at the players he might not dress, I think a couple of them probably project as seniors, right? Mm-hmm. And it would be a heck of a thing to not dress or not play seniors on senior day at the end of a lost season, especially when the people in question here have done good things for you. Maybe you just haven't had great seasons or have fallen off or have removed themselves. I don't know. Number one. Number two, can they salvage anything at this point short of the Big 12 title or is this season in such a funk that the legacy is that they may lose a record number of games under Bob Huggins. Eight in a row would be the longest in his career. Uh, they've twice had seven game losing streaks, including once earlier this season, but they've never gone to eight. It's never happened in Huggins' career. I don't know if that's the type of mark you want on your resume if you're a West Virginia basketball player, but it's certainly on the line. Um, there, there's definitely some legacy for the coach and for the team at stake on, on Saturday. And I think he's painted himself into a corner. With, with some of his decisions and non-decisions and comments and non-comments over the course of the year. Because, as you noted, he's already threatened the playing time, but never done anything about it. Um, he's already talked about making changes to the rotation, playing this guy, playing that guy. We've already gone over the red shirt stuff a bunch. Um, that seems all over the place. And now you're coming down to your two choices essentially are do you, in a last game, an otherwise meaningless game, basically the only thing this game means is senior day, do you bench seniors on senior day to prove a point when I don't know what lesson they're going to learn from it because if they get benched on senior day, they may not play in the Big 12 game either. Like, I don't think that's a one-time thing. Great point. Um, 
And, and by the way, that's your only chance to get into the postseason. Right. So, I and again, if they weren't listening, you should have benched them six, seven games ago. And and when eight, 10, 12 games ago, when you first started mentioning that that guys weren't listening. So so him not following through on the threats earlier in the season have painted himself into a corner where it's all essentially a no win situation because he either benches somebody and looks like a petty jerk for doing it on senior day or he doesn't bench somebody <clears throat> and then he has no teeth. You know, he, he said it himself that he, he um, what, what was the term he used? You, you know, essentially, you know, lost, uh, lost all credibility, credibility if he didn't bench somebody. So it, th- those are your two options. You bench him and you look like a petty jerk or you don't bench him and you lose credibility. It's a tough spot, but he's going to put himself here based off the fact that he didn't follow through on his threats earlier in the season. And it's a crazy thing to think that Bob Huggins is battling for credibility with West Virginia basketball fans. But in some regard, he kind of is because the season has not has not followed the path that was going up the past two seasons. Like they they got knocked down in 2019, got back up. This is not supposed to happen. You can make a whole bunch of points and arguments about why it has happened. But I'll fix it. I'll fix it. I think a lot of people believe that or want to believe it. But you have to show. And when you go one and 14. Mm hmm. Fixes yep. aren't either there or aren't working. And when you keep saying stuff like this, you have to do it. And I think I think a lot of the, the the red shirt stuff and the freshman stuff is confounding because you can't say that like you can't say that we probably would be better off playing these freshmen and not play them. Now, I don't know how much of that is trying to keep the freshmen and keep them happy because I'm sure they read and they hear these things. They're they're college athletes. I'm sure that they're tuned in to what their coaches are saying, what fans are saying about them, or they say, Hey, coach thinks we're part of the future, the fans think we're part of the future, they're gonna be happy and maybe less likely to think about the portal. Truth is, you got to win. And if you're not winning and you're not in position to win next year, that's a strange thing. Are you in position to win because you're playing freshmen more? You can say all you want about the freshmen are be the foundation, but if they're not playing and they're not proving it, it, it may be hard for them to believe too. Um, the red shirt thing, I, I, I can't explain beyond what I have. So I've tried. I've written about it. I have talked to Huggins about it. I've asked questions. I've talked to people on Zoom, onto the side. I've emailed. I've texted like staffers. I mean, just trying to figure out what the deal is and – as I wrote, listen, uh, Seth Wilson, Kobe Johnson cannot redshirt. It's going to be very, very hard for Jamel King to redshirt because there's been no injury disclosed with him. Um, he's played, I think, in eight games now. So he's can really I, close. Can I jump in real quick? Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, but this seems relevant because I just realized it myself. He addressed it last night on his on his radio show. Did he? He did. Help me. He admitted that the only person he thinks could redshirt, and it's no guarantee, is a Conquo. Here's how. Um, injury in the preseason, documented, written about, talked about, described, perfect. That fits. He did play in the second half of the season, and that can be disqualifying. Um, there is no if-then when it comes to these waivers. And if he is, if he's completely... Um, unable to play at the beginning of the year for the entire season. It's easy. The fact is that they thought they could get him back and they tried to play him and Huggins did in fact say, why redshirt guys? Well, you know why he said that? He did not plan on redshirting Oconquo, but Oconquo had a setback, I believe in January, a practice fall, kept him out a little bit. He did get into a game in early February against Texas Tech, second half of the season. And evidently there was some sort of a setback related to the initial injury. That could qualify not a guarantee 
that paperwork has not been filed. There's nothing in the queue about this, but that's the potential thinking. Wrote about that on, it would have been Wednesday. I did not tune into the Huggins show last night, but that is good to hear. Uh, King is going to be extremely hard. The other two cannot. Um, I have no explanation for why he said he hasn't had an explanation, and the people I've talked to haven't had an explanation except that I, I just think sometimes you put too much into these post games where a guy's like that is so mad and so fired up, and he might just be going back to notes from November in his head too. Yeah, not I mean, a great. I, I know that's not a good explanation, and it's not an excuse, but I, I just I don't think he was like winging it on this one. But to be fair, he he's been off about some other stuff this year too, and that that's certainly the biggest example. And and if you put a couple of them together, you might be able to make a case that none of this is adding up, is it? No, and and I think somebody asked me about that in the mailbag. What what do we chalk this up to? Some of these comments in post game and. Hey, when you're a Hall of Fame coach and you've lost 14 of 15 games and you are extremely frustrated, but you are contractually obligated to show up and do a post-game radio five minutes after you just lost again, I, it's hard to have everything in your mind right. So I, I kind of wrote it off for a while. Um, him sticking to his guns about some of these red shirts caught me off guard. The Aconquo thing... Like you said, you, you laid it out right there. I never, I didn't think it was possible the moment he stepped back on the court at Texas Tech. Uh, because I've been told it still might not be possible, though, too. So right. I'll put that in the bag. Yeah, because that's that's the thing that was part of, and I know they adjust and, and reword uh, the rules over time, but, you know, that was a big part of the initial redshirt rule, the hardship waiver rule, not, not a redshirt, a hardship waiver rule of for these injuries, is once you play in the second half of the season, that's it. Done, or second what not even second half right is it the, or no you can play a third but it has to be in the first half once you play in the second half one second of one game in the second half of the season that's it and i ha i am not aware of an instance where somebody played in the second half of a season and still got a hardship waiver so i think it's going to be extremely difficult again do i think james conquo is going to be here for five six years no um but that you're not playing him for a reason. And, and if it's injury, you say it's injury. If it's because you're worried about red shirts, I don't know why you are. So we'll see. I guess that's up, to, up in the air. But, yeah, he, he addressed it for the first time last night. And, no, I didn't, try, I didn't uh, listen in on the radio show last night because last week, I, again, I talked about being contractually obligated. He's uh, contractually obligated to do the radio show too, the Thursday night show. He sent in Eric Martin in his place, which, by the way, pretty good show with Eric Martin last week. Because uh, Hugs, he went out to go recruiting, which I, I respect. Like, screw it. This team's not doing well. I need to find help. And just went out recruiting. I like it. One thing on Oconco, that, that interpretation of the rule is is bendable here. Um, if the injury's in the first half, that's different than playing in the first half. The, the rule does not specify necessarily that you cannot play in the first half. Just the injury has to be in the first half and then under a 30% of the games. But you're right. How often is someone playing in that second half? Um, how incapacitating can that injury be if you're able to get back on the floor and play? And if you do get back on the floor and play and you hurt yourself, maybe you shouldn't have played. So it's, it's not an automatic that he gets in. I know that they probably feel good about it, and that's what he's talking about. But, like, lumping king in with that too doesn't make any sense and like at this point now how do you not play king because now you've been on the radio saying i'm looking at the notes online about the the recap from last night how do you not play king if that's a guy if that guy's a good shooter and you can't shoot especially from that position that he plays because bridges has had a hard time lately how do you not play king saturday and maybe in the tournament 
and just see what happens. I wouldn't expect Oconquo, but Oconquo plays. There's, there's just no way that guy's redshirting at that point. But um, it, it, it's it's messy. Something else that was pointed out to me, too, and I looked at, and it's true, he's talked about how they don't have a rim protector and their interior defense isn't good, and that's why teams pick them apart inside. They block shots at a higher rate than they did last year, uh, better average, and they're one of the best block shot percentage teams in the country. Um, do they have Culver? No. Was Culver a great rim protector? No, but Culver was like a block. He was going to be around the, around the rim, and you were going to have to deal with him. He might not jump up and block your shot, but you were going to have to deal with his 260 pounds of the basket. Um, that's very different than Kerrigan jumping up 10 feet, 6 inches and blocking your shot. But they do block shots this year. And and even in Big 12 play, it's not like they got healthy in non-conference play, just swatting shots against Radford and Eastern Kentucky. No, they've done it in Big 12 play too, but um, just a, a number of explanations haven't added up this year, but I think a lot of that is just like it, it's a swirl of things and it's probably hard to sort stuff out. And Chris, that's where it leaves you and me as like the, the gatekeepers of <laughs> what he said and what he meant. And that's a dangerous place to be. It's like putting us in charge of interpreting someone like Bob Huggins or Neil Brown or anything like that too. That's a uh, <laughs> heavy as the head, I guess. And, and Hey man, you know what these coaches love more than anything? A bunch of media guys putting words in their mouth and trying oh. to translate for them. They love yeah. it. Yeah. Love it. Getting inside their head, writing Mike is here, leaving a Snickers wrapper on their on their in their cranium. That's not good. Nobody wants that. I promise you that. Can uh, I make a counter to your block shot thing? Go for it. Did you see my stat that I put in the mailbag the other day? I thought you were going down this road. Bring it up. It's a good point. It's a good counter. Because I hadn't I'd never heard of this stat before, but I was trying to find I was trying to find a national stat of points in the paint. Couldn't find it anywhere. Um I know they have them in every individual box score, but I couldn't find it for the year. Um, but I came across opponents, two point field goal percentage on non-block shots. So these are not three point shots. They're inside the three point line and they're not blocked. Um, which I felt like was a, but not a perfect correlation to points in the paint, but a good indicator of perimeter defense, letting guys get by you guys to get quote straight line drive and how often that second line of defense, how bad West Virginia is in help defense because if it's not a block shot, it's essentially a layup, and no one shoots long twos. That's why, right? And so, it, it was West Virginia. I, I just kept scrolling down the list, scrolling. You know, it starts at the the best in the country, and I just kept scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Three hundred fortieth out of three hundred fifty eight Division one teams, and, and almost sixty percent. It's probably over sixty percent now because the Oklahoma game was like sixty eight percent, sixty nine percent in non-block two-point field goal percentage for the Sooners. And last year, that was, I mean, Huggins railed about his team's on-ball defense and how they just got straight line drived. That was like his biggest pet pet peeve last season, other than, you know, Oscar. But that was his biggest pet peeve. And they allowed 55% in these non-blocked two-point shots. This is almost 5%. This is almost 10% higher this year, worse this year than last year. 130 spots lower in the national rankings. I mean, it is atrocious how bad West Virginia is. And again, I think if you're trying to figure out what what does this mean, I think it to me it means two things. One, how bad are you stopping straight-line drives on the perimeter? And how bad is your second line of help defense? with this i think that this is what this stat indicates do you know who is number seven in the country and unblocked two point percentage on offense is it west virginia oklahoma oh oklahoma 
Yeah, sixty three percent. And oh, again, that's not that's not a jump shooting team. That's not a jump shooting team. That's a team that runs back cuts and picks and rolls and things mm-hmm. like that and does does very well too. Uh, a couple of Big Twelve teams are in that top uh, top thirty, top forty there. That that makes sense too. I I, <laughs> I don't know when we write the history of the twenty twenty two season or if we will. I don't know why you would, but Oklahoma State broke them. I think that second half where oh it, it was apparent they were like we're not shooting jump shots and like. Two things are discouraging. They didn't shoot jump shots, and they got anything that they wanted in the basket. They, they said, we're going to blow this team out because we can, and here's how. Number one. Number two, West Virginia went into that game intent on keeping them two jumpers and not letting them drive and not letting them hand it off and not letting them lob it above the rim. How many lob dunks do they have? How many handoffs like in the paint do they have for dunks? How many layups do they have? That Something happened that game, and it's never been back. And then I would wonder how And you how called similar. it early yeah. in the game. <laughs> You How, you were like this this Oklahoma State team wants to destroy West Virginia and thinks they can. They have nothing to play for. They think they can destroy West Virginia and they're going to. And you called it in like the first five minutes of the game. Yeah, it was it was apparent. Um, and then and then at halftime to say let's do this one thing and do it really well, and they did. And like I I just have to think other teams have said, why even bother with another plan of attack? This is so easy, right? Like they're gonna they're gonna guard you and they're gonna take you out of your sets and things like that because they still they can still mess up your your offense they can still keep you from running plays but if they go ball screen and they spread and they bounce it at you they don't their defense is not equipped to handle that right now too and to your point about blocking shots Culver didn't move around a whole bunch he was always gonna be right around the rim Pollock and Kerrigan move around so much and they're trying to block layups and, and block sh- shots that are near the basket and they leave a lot of weak side stuff and a lot of offensive rebounds and a lot of handoffs and. Just that extra pass can get them in trouble, and like Oklahoma picked them apart. Like they were, they would drive from one direction. The point guard would, you know, either go on a diagonal or the baseline or something like that, and then all of a sudden that defense would converge, and somebody would cut from the the offside and just catch it and lay it in. And they were told again and again and again, that's what they're going to do because that's what Oklahoma does. And every time that West Virginia tried to go and, and trap the ball or or cut off the drive or block the shot that never went up. They just got picked apart, and that's that's a consistent thing. You can attack that in different ways. Every offense can attack that in different ways, but that's the thing you're attacking is that they they just do not have a way to stay disciplined and, and keep the ball from getting inside or to do anything about it when it gets inside. That's And that's debilitating for a defense. Yep. Finally, baseball, three-game series. Indoors in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. That's nice. Um, Minnesota, Illinois, Michigan State, 6-2 and two overall. Wrapped out, seventeen runs, one by two touchdowns on uh, on Wednesday. That'd be a good test. Like they're they're playing well, they're figuring out their pitching, and um, I think a lot of people are looking forward to baseball games around here. So they can come back with two, maybe three more wins. That's fine. Even if they come back with one, you're still looking at a, a team that has an identity. We've complained about that a lot. If you're a fan or a media person, what's the identity of this team? They have an identity, but they also have young people they're investing in and playing too. So. I think if you're looking for like an, uh, uh, an anathema experience for you, this is probably worth it. We keep talking about it, but hey, maybe they're turning this into a baseball a baseball school, at least in the spring and early summer, because they have something that's worth watching this year. And the weather's complying, too. Yeah, did, did you like how it was such a Debbie Downer when somebody asked about that in the mailbag? Yeah, I was going to talk about that. that. Uh, <laughs> basketball team starting out, was it 12-1, and 11-1, and uh, football talking about, making it to the conference championship game after week four. So let's not, let's not get over our skis here. Let's see their Friday, Saturday starters in big 12 play. Yeah. Yeah. 
that would be because they haven't gotten great starts out of the Friday and Saturday guys, but they're getting guys back like that. They, they could have some more arms. Tyler Stretch a pitched recently. That could be a guy that, that joins the starting rotation or pushes or maybe he gets in and gives you a couple of innings. They, they have guys and their bullpen's deep enough, but can they can they run bullpen games out for all those big 12 weekends? Probably not. And I, I'm not sure their offense can bang around the park like that either. They can get runs and they can make things difficult, but 17 runs a game isn't happening. You know, seven runs a game may not happen either. Not with that attitude. Yo, you started, not me. <laughs> Anything else, Chris? Nah, that's it for now. Won't hear from you for a while, huh? At least not on the podcast, yeah. Uh, vacation next week. Kids spring break. Got to take advantage of it. Um, <clears throat> but already got, what, I, already, I think I already got two a day set up in the queue. Uh, updates with spring signees or signees that are not rolling until after spring. Uh, a few recruiting stories. I'm going to catch up with guys that are, Visiting this weekend, you know, big visit weekend for a few guys. We've seen that this first weekend in March has been an important visit weekend uh, over the years that uh, then last two cycles, three cycles, I guess three cycles, but only two years because they, they couldn't visit last time uh, last year. But the guys that end up showing up this first weekend in March have been some top targets, and West Virginia has ended up pulling commitments from guys that come this weekend, including the likes of Wyatt Milam when he was, you know, a big-time recruit coming out of high school. And he he popped in this weekend, not too much later, committed to West Virginia. So keep an eye on the guys that are coming this weekend. I'll try to get updates with as many as possible before I hop on a plane on Sunday afternoon. But uh, big, 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 big visit weekend. You got to get into a plane to go to a place with uh, 500 people, one stoplight, and nine bars. <laughs> Midvale, Ohio. You got to go. Great yep. vacation town. It is a great vacation town. Hmm. Well, I'm going to hold down the fort until you're gone and uh, bridge the gap between now and spring football. West Virginia locked into the Wednesday game of the Big 12 tournament. Um, after that, should they win, they play likely Kansas. Kansas, big win last night against TCU to not get swept in three days by the Horn Frogs who come to town Saturday. Um, wheezing, I would bet. They've had a hellacious schedule lately, but have come out on the right side of it quite likely an NCAA tournament team right now, too. So West Virginia can be spoiler or be spoiled at home. We'll see on Saturday. Until then, I'm Mike Casaza, And I'm Chris Anderson. We'll talk to you later.